I think sanity is really allowing ourselves to express our deepest human emotions without fear. I think that's sanity. And if we mark sanity that way, then yeah, like all city life is basically completely insane because we don't, we don't really hear people screaming and yelling and laughing and crying at the, at the deepest level. You know, we just hear mostly just superficial chatter about social media and what happened yesterday, what happened, what's going to happen tomorrow and their work and money. But it's, it's nothing substantial. Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. Anyone who's listened to this show for a while knows that when I talk about our place in time, it usually comes with an heroic dose of scrutiny into the ways we ordinarily construct linear historical narratives are we really sure where where we think we are on this map? And I don't think I would be doing this quite so frequently if I hadn't had in my own life a history of time-bending and axiom-challenging experiences with the assistance of psilocybin or magic mushrooms. Now, because I'm as square as I am hip, I think it's important for me to stress that I don't really encourage everyone to use psychedelics and certainly not to the degree that I was using them in college, <laughs> but I would be completely disingenuous if I did not admit that many of my deepening insights into the structure of complex systems and the role of human beings in the evolution of intelligence were not derived directly from profound and challenging experiences that science has since confirmed to be the product of psilocybin's relaxation of the ordinary walls between different parts of the brain, between the conscious and the unconscious mind, and the consequent refiguring of all of our conceptual categories under the influence of these substances, self and other, nature and culture, inner and outer. With any luck, you don't need the kind of potent interventions that we discuss in this episode. With any luck, you have found your way to these truths through subtler means like meditation and yoga and so on. But of course, it's also a mistake to conflate these things to suggest that one experience is the equivalent of the other. And with every passing year, the evidence that psilocybin mushrooms in particular are an invaluable tool for treating the depression and malaise, alienation, disempowerment, and fear that are pandemic in today's society. I also think that my friend and mentor Richard Doyle's perspective that the psychedelic experience is a kind of training wheel for transhumanism, meaning specifically a way for us to prepare ourselves for the bizarre, complex, multidimensional realities that we seem to be inexorably drawn into through our engagement with new media and the new scale and pace of human life. 
Well, I agree with that. Certainly has been my experience. So it's with pleasure that I welcome Chi, Mitsuaki Chi of Truffles Therapy to the podcast this week. He's one of a team of people leading psychedelic therapy retreats in and around Amsterdam in a legal and supportive environment and represents, I think, a really interesting instance of an emergent psychedelic underground as these experiences and their bizarre contents and healing potential become more and more a part of the daylight surface conversation. Chi's also got an interesting personal story where he came into his engagement with psychedelics from a deep and committed practice with Buddhism, which is the opposite of the way that we usually hear about this kind of thing. And so it's been fun to talk with him about that. Before we get into it, I just want to thank all of you who have been donating through a subscription to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. New patrons for this episode include Danny Garcia, Ramin Nazir, yeah, Ren, and the 135 other people that are supporting this show with a few bucks a month, helping me keep this show afloat, helping me remain independent frankly, justifying the insane amount of time I put into every episode and the uh, moderation of our free and public Facebook group. There are a few different tiers of support available, and I've really done everything to go above and beyond people's expectations in terms of what I offer to folks at every tier. So I hope you'll go to the site and check that out if you haven't already. There's a ton of free stuff up there. Also, big thanks to everybody who has been rating and reviewing this show on Apple Podcasts. It is immensely helpful, and it means that I get to meet new people that are not just my friends or friends of friends, but we can reach our slimy pseudopods out into the wider world and inspire folks we don't know. They're just friends we haven't met. Last thing is my friend Mike Schwab, who is this show's featured patreon supporter works for a cool website that he and by extension i would love for you to know about it's knowyourmeme.com which i imagine will be immensely useful to cultural anthropologists of the future in their attempts to understand what the hell we were all talking about in the early 21st century know your meme is where you can go to research the histories of popular web memes like distracted boyfriend, etc. And given the riotous diversity of these bizarre niche signifiers on the web these days, it may just be required of all of us in order to prevent serious culture shock from within our own culture. Go check out knowyourmeme.com. All right, friends, that's that. Thank you for tuning into this show and enjoy this conversation with Mitsuaki Chi of truffletherapy.com. Gee, it's such a pleasure to 
<laughs> view on future fossils after weeks, possibly months of playing phone tag here? Yeah, it's it's uh, really beautiful, and I really appreciate being on here. Yeah, so like you were saying before the call, this whole thing about the nexus of psychedelics is is that the psychedelics don't typically point to themselves. They they point beyond themselves to the deeper concerns of human existence. But uh, I think it would be kind of kind of nice to to situate this in. Uh, some human story. So <laughs> if I can even ask this question, if it's even appropriate, how, how did you s get started facilitating these events? Hmm. Yes. So that's a, that can, that answer that this question can be answered in so many ways. I'll just go with the human linear uh, history way. Um, <laughs> I mean, most of my 20s, I was in and out of silent meditation retreats in the Buddhist tradition. And I spent about roughly 16 months in retreat, you know, here and there and a few months at a time here and there. And I was lucky enough to practice with some amazing masters in Thailand and Burma. And of course, um, Goenkaji with the 10-day with the Vipassana courses. I was in that system for quite a while. And... I had rejected psychedelics for a long time because it's there's just so much stigma attached to mushrooms and LSD in our culture and and then you know and then it just started calling and I had to heed the call because even after spending so much time in meditation you know I was still quite desperate and was always falling back into my patterns. I had no purpose really. And I was just really narcissistic and arrogant, self-centered, basically all the diseases of Western culture. I had it, you know, addiction, low self-esteem, all of that. And yeah, then I was in San Francisco when I was about 28 and a half and I was given the opportunity to try LSD, and so I did. And it was a big first dose. I had about five tabs, so 500 micrograms of LSD. Yeah, that's a lot. And yeah, and that just completely blew my mind. And then, you know, the mushrooms started calling. I was offered the opportunity to try little mushrooms a few weeks later after that, and yeah, after that experience, it really shifted. It started shifting so many of these long-held beliefs of what psychedelics are and how, you know, we're taught in our society that they're dangerous and that they're going to make you crazy. And and then and then we see when we experience it that that's actually not true at all and that they actually show us something that's way beyond this materialistic world. So yeah, and then, you know, it's been two years since that first mushroom journey, that first LSD journey, and it's just been a journey of being initiated into the mushroom. And the more the more mushrooms and truffles I took and the more journeys I, I took, it you know, it just started becoming clear that this was a miracle in my life then it and it was healing all these deep traumas and was just a call to start, you know, holding space ceremonies for people. And after about six months since we had our first real ceremonies for people, I mean, 
we're doing group retreats and people from all over the world are coming and YouTubers are bringing their subscribers and doctors are getting involved and PhDs and psychiatrists and therapists. So I don't know what it is, but somehow I'm, I'm in it. And, uh, I just, I just feel really lucky to be part of something so vast and intelligent. Mm. Yeah. So <laughs> to the point of, of, uh, sane and crazy i think it's really interesting that you know we've started doing these brain scan studies with psychedelics and one of the things that we're seeing in the brain scans is that it's a down regulation of activity in the parts of the brain associated with normal ego activity you know with the orientation of a biographical self in time and the boundaries of the body in, in space. And yet these are not, um, when we think about what it is to be sane, you know, sanity, at least right now, is very much sort of a measure of how embedded and immersed you are in the city space, in, in human culture, yeah. you know, and that there's this it's almost like our fear of artificial intelligence and of aliens are these like holdovers from a time when we were clustered in these urban developments that held themselves against this very large and terrifying wilderness. And now we've stretched all over the planet. And so like we're living in the places where the dragons and tigers were, mm -hmm. uh, but we're not... You know, we, there's there's like this thing about, yeah, the nature culture divide and mm. the psychedelic experience taking us beyond the the, the concerns of culture. And that that's part, mm. probably part of why uh, these things have been regarded with such fear. And I'm, I'm curious yeah. to hear you speak to that. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think once we start really delving into psychedelics, we realize how insane modern society and Western culture is. The whole, I mean, I was brought up just thinking that success and money and numbers and getting positions and titles, I thought that was it, you know, especially the smart kids, they get, they just get dragged into the system. I mean, I see some of the smartest kids going to work for investment firms or, or um, banks or consulting firms or like Google and Facebook. It's just such a tragedy that the smartest minds are the, are the easiest to get their, their souls sold sort of, you know? And um, yeah, I think it's really just, we really see how deep the conditioning is and how our minds from a young age have been sort of, computerized to think in terms of numbers and growth and capitalism and not necessarily going into the infinite, but going into the finite millions and billions. I mean, that's our, that's what we see as success as a billion, you know? And, <laughs> and, and I think once we start delving into psychedelics, we realize that actually money is just a tool so that we have time and energy to give back to the world and also that we can take time to ourselves to delve into what actually infinity is, what it actually means to be the body of Christ, you know, what it actually means to go into this emptiness that the, that the Buddhists talk about the isness, um, 
non-duality. I mean, all these things, there can be amazing concepts, but unless we really experience it ourselves, you know, we it just remains intellectual. It just remains this kind of status symbol that we can talk about it. But I mean, my my encouragement to everybody is just see where psychedelics can take you, you know, and see what kind of traumas it can heal and what kind of sadness it can bring up, what kind of rage it can bring up. Also, what kind of light and love is beneath it all. And I think sanity is really allowing ourselves to express our deepest human emotions without fear. I think that's sanity. And if we mark sanity that way, then yeah, like all city life is basically completely insane because we don't, we don't really hear people screaming and yelling and laughing and crying at the, at the deepest level. You know, we just hear mostly just superficial chatter about social media and what happened yesterday, what happened, what's going to happen tomorrow and their work and money. But it's, it's nothing substantial. Mm. You know, it's interesting. I remember back in college, I had a, uh, a spring break trip. I was at the, in the University of Kansas, and my friend and I tra- uh, traveled out to, to Boulder for the break and went up into the mountains. And we had these mushrooms that we were going to consume up in the mountains somewhere. And it never happened. And then suddenly there was a huge blizzard, and we had to rush back. And we got trapped in a motel room along the highway in Colorado and ended up taking the motel route, take the mushrooms in the motel. Mm. And when I heard my friend laughing that night, it was the most sincere and animal and beautiful laughter I think I had ever heard from Mm. anyone, much less her. And it's so interesting that you point to the sounds of civilization versus the sounds that are evoked when we turn civilization off in a person mm-hmm. yeah. and, and how, you know, um, to, to, to connect that to another dot. I remember I was in ayahuasca ceremony again, years and years ago. And there was, a uh, the, the fellow leading our ceremony, uh, he and his, his partner observed that, even though we were all having this beautiful, very precious experience together, that from the outside, all of these people were like rolling around, um, shouting, uh, exclaiming, uh, uh, you know, often like purging themselves or whatever. And that from the outside, this this beautiful, even sacred thing looked like we, we were probably men- mentally insane. Mm-hmm. And... So, but th- there's another thing here, which is the the decline in auditory diversity in our environment. Mm. And mm-hmm. I, I didn't expect to talk about this with you today, but like there is, you know, the the amount of noise coming from birds and insects and underwater life, it has been just devastated over the last few yeah. decades. And it, I, I just found it really fascinating. And I'd love to see you like riff and, and, and pick at this a little more about the, yeah. the, the relationship between the diversity of our our auditory or our or just our sensual and sen- sensory environments yeah. and and the sanity and and the kind of clarity that these experiences can bring us yeah yeah i think this is a really beautiful point i mean i'm in my uh, apartment in amsterdam and i'm looking out and there's two birds and i'm just thinking about the animals and 
Yeah, I think the most of the sounds that we hear are from the computer <laughs> and the phone and pinging. And I think that's and cars, you know, and I mean, I live in Amsterdam where bikes are more popular than cars and we still hear cars. So I can't imagine a big city like, you know, L.A. or, or New York. It's just that kind of I think it's I, I really always imagine back into how the indigenous people lived, especially uh, Native Americans and how they were so in touch with nature and how even before they killed animals, they really prayed and they cleaned their weapons so that they could treat the animal with respect and they treated death with so much reverence. And um, yeah, I feel like that's why it's so important for people to go out into nature to see what it's like without human made sound, you know, like what actually is natural sound. And I think the more people do that, the more people get connected to, you know, themselves and opening up their, their senses and not being protective, you know, because a lot of times in cities, we have to protect ourselves from noises because it's traumatic to be around all these kind of chaotic, hectic noises. So we have to sort of close down and put headphones in or whatever. And that's, you know, that's sometimes when I'm in big cities, I realize like, wow, so many people just have to block off the world. They have to block off other humans. They have to sort of insulate themselves and protect and try to control the sounds they hear. And I think that's a great, you know, like, I mean, I, it's, I, I really do my best to stay optimistic, but also, it's. I think it's really important to touch into the tragedies in life and what modern society has brought into our lives, and also what it has, you know, made us lose and made us forget. And really remembering what's most important, like the sounds of the birds and the crickets, and finding opportunities and environments where we can reconnect with actually animals to see how actually how connected we are and how those animals are just a part of us and part of the environment as well. Mm. You know, you, you, you said something earlier in your story about how you entered this space from a, a deep and committed Buddhist practice, which I think is uh, usually the inverse of how this mm. goes. I feel like at least in the West, you know, a, a lot of people came to their, uh, contemplative practice through a psychedelic experience and i find it really fascinating that for mm -hmm. you it was the other way around and I'm, I'm curious how you feel that that prepared you uh or yeah and, and then also you know how um as is the case for all of us you know we bring uh enculturated expectations and uh framings into these psychedelic experiences that that uh, limit or define the way that we encounter the the mystery with within, and so I'm curious yeah. both how you feel Buddhism has, uh, you know, has has been supportive and also been challenging in this regard. Yeah, this is a this is a really good one. You know, all throughout there are several strains of Buddhism, just like in any other religion. And one of the core uh, tenets of Buddhism is having faith in the practice and never giving up and just continually going no matter how dark it gets. It's called sada. It's one of the 
you know, five main, um, main principles in the practice. And, and especially in Tibetan Buddhism, the whole practice of guru, guru devotion and guru surrender, it's seen as the fastest path, you know, and I always resisted this because I was always a very intellectual person. I always loved theories and rationalizing, memorizing, and I was always a good student, you know, straight A most of the time and graduating with honors all throughout. And so I had this deep kind of, this kind of narcissistic intellectual uh, thing that I brought into the Buddhist practice. And it clearly didn't work because, yeah, meditation makes us just relinquish all our kinds of understandings and theoretical knowledge. And so when I came into psychedelics, I was so ready to just let go and surrender. I mean, I had heard this word surrender literally thousands of times. I had read it thousands of times and I still, it just didn't happen because I just didn't have that kind of propensity. But yeah, now it's amazing because my life is, I really, really, truly, at the depth of my being, understand what surrender is. And I've basically relinquished any kind of resistance towards idea of surrender. Of course, you know, I still have my own personality and I have my own shadow and man, do I resist? Like I, I wake up sometimes or I, I, there's certain things I have to do just for work. I go, Oh gosh, like I, did I really even choose this? Like I definitely didn't choose, you know, if I, if I did have a choice, I would be on the beach, like swimming every day, you know? But, um, so I feel like I was ready. I was ready just to let go of everything and just to go into this life of service and to just be nothing. I was ready to be nothing, basically, mm. you know? Um, and I think that's, I see a lot of people and, and going into psychedelics with a very intellectual mind without having a strong meditation practice. And it seems like a lot of people are just trying to figure it out. They're trying to get the theory behind psychedelics, like how it works scientifically <laughs> and how it works on their body and their brain. I'm like, is that really the most important thing? Like how it works on your brain? Like how about just doing it and surrendering yourself to the experience and seeing that actually you don't know anything about anything. And, and, um, well, I can yeah, think so, of at least one reason why that's, uh, something that someone would regard as a, as a, as a bug rather than a feature. You know? Yes. Right. <laughs> not... and, and, yeah. And this is totally, it is, is people think that not knowing is a bug instead of the greatest thing and the greatest freedom on earth, you know? Um, and you know, there's a quote by some Buddhist master that says, um, you know, uh, I don't know is the beginning of wisdom or something like that. Like, I don't know if you can say, I don't know, then you're really starting to understand what it's like to step into infinity and the unknown. Um, but yeah, I don't think, Buddhist, I, I think, I think it's, I think the Buddhist practice has made me very resistant to the scientific part. And that's something I'm continually working on because, you know, I used to memorize facts and numbers, like I had a relatively photographic memory, so I can still do it. But just to bring something so sacred, like mushrooms into percentages and numbers and scientific terms, it just, it, it seems like it's desecrating how how powerful these things are. Interesting. You know, there's there's the uh, 
the the books by Katagiri Roshi. He was a mentor to a philosopher, an American philosopher, Ken Wilber, that I studied for many years. And, and Ken was fond of talking about how Katagiri's second book was You Must Say Something. And it was about how, you know, the deeper you go into silence, the more difficult or unpleasant it becomes <laughs> to open your mouth to try and communicate the experience in words. And that it's sort of like the final boss of meditation. Uh, as, as you know, there's the, uh, in Zen, there's the ox herding pictures. Mm. And, you know, the, the, the 10 images that, they, that sort of track the, the cultivation of awakening. And the final images of the, the ox herder taking his oxen, which represent his wisdom, back into the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And that it's like the, the, the sort of the, the final challenge of our practice is knowing in the way that you mentioned it, like in your bones, like with in the deepest possible way that the silence is not corrupted or despoiled or or damaged in any way when you do investigate it scientifically. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think about like mm-hmm. Sri Aurobindo and how he, you know, his thing was let's get people awakened as fast as possible so that the science becomes fun, you know, mm-hmm. so that so that we can explore the infinity that we are without any kind of wrongheadedness about what that exploration really means, you know, because like you said, it's not, you know, if you practice, if you practice this kind of intellectual investigation from a place uh, where you have yet to surrender then you end up with like the last several hundred years of scientific investigation where it's like geared on control, you know? And, and so anyway, that's, that's just a, an an old horse I enjoy riding around on this show, but yeah, that's beautiful. (laughs) That's really, I mean, the Oxfording pictures are really, they're powerful images. And also to realize that most of us are not even close to being at the last, <laughs> we haven't, uh, we haven't really worked on ourselves. I mean, mm. I say 16 months in silence and people are shocked, but I mean, in some Buddhist traditions, you're made to sit for a couple years just as an initiation. Like that's the beginning of the practice. <laughs> you know? So yeah, it's, it's, um, the Western, I think, I think more spirituality in the Western world is, is the medicine. Do you did when you were sitting, spending all this time in silence beforehand? Did that change? Do you think that 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 affected the way that you encounter psychedelics? As I don't know, like you know, because because certainly some people have a, a bit more of like a messy and playful approach, you know, mm-hmm. where they're they're a little bit more willing to engage the strange phenomena that come up through that experience and and tango with them whereas i imagine you know from a more sort of i don't know maybe the the term would be like a masculine sort of stillness approach Mm -hmm. to it you know that 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 sort of buddhic just allowing things to unfold and then disappear like do you do you find yourself adopting a, a a fairly traditional tibetan buddhist attitude towards the content of your psychedelic experiences oh for sure yeah i'm completely surrendered there's no sense of trying to control or direct i mean yeah i just i just it's like i'm just taking marching orders from the mushroom now and just 
downloading the visions they they show and just yeah just trying to it's really about being overwhelmed by how vast the universe is and how much history the mushrooms have seen just coming up and down and you know fruiting and then disappearing again into the earth and then fruiting and then dropping their spores disappearing i mean they've seen so many millions of years of evolution happening and yeah it's like that kind of i mean really when i when i go on major journeys now it's like i just offer myself as the offering at the altar of the divine and i just I just say, okay, fine. Like, yeah, just take it again. Take me again. Do what you want with it. And yeah, I just, mostly it's just me lying there in a fetal position or in a, you know, on my back and just waiting for the tears to come mostly. I mean, every time I have any type of serious journey, I'm just, there comes a point about an hour and a half or two hours in where I just, all this pent up sadness just comes out and I just wail and I cry and I howl like a wolf sometimes. And and I scream and yeah, it's that it's that kind of relinquishing and letting go of that sadness that's in all of life, basically, you know, and then beneath all that is so much pure love and light. And yeah, I mean, life is beautiful and it's sad and it's scary and it's 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 light at the same time. So it's everything at once. And that's what can also cause the amazing laughter is because it's like a cosmic joke. <laughs> it's like there's no point, but we are the point. Like we are the end thing of what nature has created. So it's like <laughs> we don't know what's happening, basically. So there's there's an interesting thing here in, you know, so many people and especially, you know, the, in my experience, the people I meet from Europe, you know, where there has been this profound renunciation of Christianity and organized religion over the last few hundred years, this movement into the secular and scientific. Uh, so many of the people that I, I encounter in this, the global psychedelic conversation when I like, for example, went to boom festival a couple years ago are deeply secular, almost militant atheists. Yeah. And I don't know what I was expecting speaking to someone from Amsterdam, but it was not, this kind of spiritual language and I'm, yeah. I'm i'm curious you know there's there's also that sort of split in buddhism where some people are uh, quite happy to discuss it in terms of spirit and the divine and, and transcendence and others are are quite happy to just regard it as psychology and an examination of the processes yeah. of one's own mind so i'm, yeah. I'm curious what that's like both for you personally as well as culturally in the way that you you interface with European culture in the hosting of these events. And then maybe we can yeah. use that as an opportunity to talk about the way that these things actually unfold, like what this actually looks and feels like when you're you're holding space for a group of people in this kind of vulnerable, profound, intense kind of thing. Hmm. Well, yeah, we've, I mean, we've encountered a lot of resistance, especially in this Amsterdam community when we first came in. I think it's a little better now because we just did what we did and now there's not too much can stop us. But uh, I mean, not too much can stop the mushroom from growing, of course. You're talking but, about um, the legal changes. Well, it's, it's no, we face a lot of resistance in terms of from the scientific minded uh, community. Um, 
Yeah, I would say, I mean, you know, I've been around these science uh, groups and I mean, I, I don't I, just it just out of all honesty, I just don't feel a sense of really too much happiness in these groups. You know, they're they're just they're just all thinking way too much, like trying to figure it out. It just not something a small human mind can figure out, you know, Um and of course, like I read all the science. I mean, I've I've read literally almost every single scientific study, especially at least the summaries. I mean, I I know literally every study that's been done on psilocybin over the last, you know, 20 years. And and yeah, okay, so these studies have been done. Okay, so okay, so what's the next step? Like, are we gonna continually wait for the institutions to incorporate these or or do we really have to start questioning the institutions, the government, the science, like the, do pharmaceuticals really care about human healing? Like, are we really going to wait for pharmaceuticals to fund more studies? And then what? And then they fund it like Compass is doing. And then the scientists and psychiatrists who are working at these studies, they're not allowed to talk about it because there's some kind of secrecy. And of course they don't want, you know, they, they it's not about, I mean, there's, there's so much politics in this and, I would say for me, I've experienced, you know, I've been in and out of the retreat centers and monasteries. So I, I have this sense that I've been around so many masters and I just know how they feel like and how they act and how they speak. And basically none of them speak about science. They just speak in language of love and care. And yeah, like they just reassure people like it's okay. Yeah. Everybody's suffering. It's all good. Basically, just keep going, you know, just keep going. There's just stop thinking, just keep practicing, letting go. And just the whole idea of Buddhist practice about relinquishing ideas. So, I mean, it's still a little foreign to me how, you know, so much science can be wrapped around spirituality and and the psychedelics and how, how people can go through these journeys and still hold on to these ideas of who they think they are or something. I mean, I guess I came in a little bit more prepared, so I feel really grateful for that. And I and I wish I I really wish people really this heart opening, this third eye opening kind of journey where they really see the vision of the psychedelics. They really see that they are part of the vision. You know, it's not the human that's the center of life. It's the vision that's the center and it's part it's up to us as humans to realize what the vision is and just to serve the vision and to play a role in the vision so it's really just twisting and completely making the ego crumble and of course that's scary um so yeah that's a little bit about i, I mean I'm, pr- I'm sure i didn't answer the whole question about mm-hmm. christianity atheism but yeah, just more religion, more spirituality. This is what this world needs. I mean, I see so many depressed people and especially young people. They're just they're just so sucked into the system, you know. And of course, there are people trying to make their way out, but there aren't very many support systems for the people who are really open-hearted. You know, they just get they just get tossed aside because their souls can't be sold and so there's no one buying their services <laughs> so it's there's a lot of sadness that i see in that in this kind of community you know do you to frame it in terms of community you said you've been doing these in amsterdam for like 6 months right 
that's, that's roughly yeah. That's not a lot of time. Like, do you, have you found that the how does this actually look in terms of a like a community structure? Are you working with the same people on a regular basis? Is this a is this sort of a, a growing scene where you are? Yeah, well, we have um, we started with my partner Letty and I. Um, you know, we just started. It, it just was so innocent. We're like, oh yeah, like maybe we should make a website and start offering ceremonies. And the first idea we had was like an overnight ceremony. And uh, we were just brainstorming ideas of names and truffles therapy was open as a domain name. We're like, wow, that's a good name. And um, yeah, now it's blossomed to 15 people in our organization and people are visiting from around the world. They're visiting from US and UK, Sweden. I mean, really talented, creative people who are just seeking a different way to live, a different way to work, a different way to be part of something. And yeah, I mean, we also have, you know, that's Truffles Therapy, and we also have tripsitters.org, which is like a harm reduction website, and we list all the other trip sitters in Amsterdam who are offering psilocybin um, sessions, and also there's about eight or nine retreat companies around the world. A lot of them are coming to Amsterdam and Netherlands to do their retreats for psilocybin, and we also have Amsterdam Psychedelic Community, which is a little group we started um, you know, just like a, it, I mean, we started out as Amsterdam Psilocybin Society. Actually, no, wait, no, actually now it's called Amsterdam Psychedelic Community. Yeah. And then we thought, okay, so community, uh, might be a better fit because society is a little like highbrow exclusive and we wanted it to be more mainstream inclusive. And then, yeah. And then we also, and then we changed it to Amsterdam Psychedelic Community because, Psilocybin, the word psilocybin is still blocked on Facebook in all the searches. So we thought oh it'd be easier. God, really? Oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, psilocybin is still, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, the governments and the big corporations, they don't want people really finding out about this stuff because this is scary. It threatens their their uh, control and it threatens to turn sheep into actually human beings, you know. So, um yeah, and then uh, we also have Amsterdam Conscious Community, which is another group on Facebook that we started. And yeah, I mean, our whole idea is bringing more indigenous culture and indigenous ways of being, getting into circles instead of more circles, less stages is the kind of feeling that we want to bring. Like everybody has a voice to share and nobody's voice is more special than others. It's it's let everybody speak their truth. Then let's listen to the hundred neighbors that we have instead of the one a scientist saying something on stage like which is which is more important it, direct experiences from a hundred people or a scientist who's been in a laboratory studying this stuff in a clinical setting like which actually holds more weight you know um and yeah so that's a little bit about community mm. so I, I you know the, the reason i asked about community was because i'm curious what patterns you may have observed uh, over time in the way that people who are having these experiences who are in the in the kind of a place that you just spoke about you know that are um, you know miserable and disenchanted mm -hmm. and running after the wrong squirrel so to speak um, how how you see those people change over time and and how you know because there's this thing about on the one hand uh 
you know, people talk about there being a lot of uh, positive or, or, or beneficial uh, things that come along with being a part of a community of spiritual practice that are in some way um, distinct from whatever those practices actually are. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that you are, you feel supported, you feel like you're part of a, a network that cultural dimension is is very much a a necessary nutrient in the human psyche but then there's there's also uh the the specific nature of this community and the ego dissolving part of this which yeah. is not necessarily reflected in say like the practices of a, like a lutheran church you know <laughs> so like how do you like like what are you actually seeing in in the people that you have watched encounter this stuff for the first time and they've been in it for a while like presumably you are like tracking people and staying staying close to them and watching them evolve yeah well i mean yeah it's been amazing just i think the two things people want more than anything are purpose and community and yeah, we've seen massive transformations. I mean, one of the people that work for us now, his name is Lucas, and he came in super shy, like super low self-esteem and just couldn't speak, like wasn't confident whatsoever. And then he came to a retreat with us and he completely changed after that. And yeah, now he's part of the, the team and he cooks and he like helps everybody stay healthy and man now he's brighter than ever and he's just so open and this is a transformation that happened in like four months now and yeah i mean from purely so sad and miserable and depressed and no confidence and now being part of something and having a mission every day it seems like this is what people want they want to be part of something bigger and they don't want to be fighting against other human beings they want to be working together with other human beings, because this is what's natural. They want a tribe. They want a community. Um, and yeah, like, you know, of course, some people we never hear from them again because they just have their own lives. But we're always open to contact. And I think just the knowledge that just the feeling that they have when they know that they can reach out to someone in in any kind of emergency or to talk about anything important I think just that alone, even if they never reach out, that gives them the sense of of love and belonging that sometimes they haven't had in too many other situations. So, yeah, I mean, we've seen I mean, it'd be way too many to list. But, yeah, we've seen transformations in hundreds of people that we've been in touch with for sure. And, and they keep their jobs and they're um, they're they, they well, remain integrated or. Well, let's, let's talk about that so, part. Yeah, I think this is I think this is the most perhaps difficult part because a lot of them come to psychedelics because they're completely miserable in their jobs, you know, and they're just seeking another way to look at things or they don't know another way out. Um but it seems like a lot of them have more confidence in following their passions and their the greater vision and they learn something from the truffles and they just see something bigger than themselves and then they feel more oriented towards service and generosity i mean we know one writer who 
wrote an article about us. She was one of our first, actually, she was our first real private client. She came with another writer and she published an article about us in the sun. And, um, yeah, I mean, now she's writing a book on truffles and she's completely changed from someone who was sort of like, well, let's say a little, um, let's say a little like airy, a little airy and just no direction to now she's so focused on getting this book out. And that change has been happening over like five or six months. And, you know, she's still a writer, but now she's using her talents to, to, um, like to serve a greater purpose. And I think this is what we see most is people don't change their talents or their skills. They just look for different ways to volunteer or to, find the place in society where they can use their talents for good. Mm. So I'm, you know, you have mentioned many times this vision, the greater vision for us and uh, at risk of, you know, flirting with the impossible here. <laughs> I'm, I would love to hear you talk more about the cosmology that you feel has been imparted to you, you know, this, this, yeah. this picture and, and not only this, uh, not only the portrait, but the purpose that mm. you understand from these experiences, you know, cause I definitely have had, and I won't go into them now, but I've definitely have over the years, I think had my own vision of what we're doing here, uh, powerfully shaped by experiences like this. And, mm you know, a sense of the human place and things. Uh, and I'd love to yeah. hear you talk uh, in in terms as concrete as you feel are appropriate. Mm -hmm. uh, because obviously a big piece of this is, you know, in a sense, right, narrative storytelling part of it is, you know, in some weird way, kind of like a subtle, uh, it's like a vestigial control effort. And I want to mm -hmm. acknowledge that, you know, telling a story gives us a place to stand as human beings in the like molten creativity of our world. And it's not necessarily the truest thing, mm -hmm. but I'd still love to hear sort of where, where the, the vast story that holds all stories has like settled in you. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's starting with the planet earth. You know, the planet earth is a one of nine planets in this solar system around the sun, which is actually an insignificant star in the grand scheme of things. This solar system, well, we know that there, we think that there are nine. I mean, who knows what we know actually, right? I mean, have any of us been to the outer edges of this solar system? So none of us can really know what's even in the solar system. And then the solar system is part of this thing called, they call the Milky Way, which is however many millions, or I don't even know the numbers. I mean, it, I think there comes a point where numbers don't even matter. We just realize how small we are. So we're part of this Milky Way, which is this galaxy. And then and then I think beyond that, there's like we're part of this bigger group of galaxies, you know, and the Milky Way is just one little group. And then there are many, many, you know, millions or however many millions of galaxies in the seen universe. And then who knows how many universes and how many realms there are. So I think that's a starting point to realize how physically small human beings are, like a single human um, body. And so in the grand scheme of things, literally like the planet and the human body is basically 
as insignificant as each other. We're just basically specks of dust, right? And so like a human body and an ant or like a termite or a bee, like we're basically the same size, right? In the grand scheme of things. So I think, I think the more we delve into infinity, the more we realize that humans and especially this single human experience, this individual human experience, this chi that sits here today is actually not the center of everything that happens and that has happened. It's not like if I don't do it, then uh, the world is going to go to shit or the world is going to, you know, I have to rescue the world. No, it's it's I'm just this little creature on this little planet in this little solar system. And my job is to create as little harm as possible and as much benefit as possible while I'm in this earth. I mean, the Buddhist uh, mantra, One, I mean, Buddhists have a lot of little sayings and number threes and number fours, but one of their main sayings is do good, avoid evil, and purify the mind. So that's, you know, basically tell the truth and don't steal, don't kill, don't commit sexual misconduct, don't uh, drink alcohol, you know, don't don't hurt your body. And then also you know, plant good seeds of generosity and love and share what we have to benefit others and to, I guess, be grateful and to recognize the grace that's in all of our lives just to be on this planet as a human. I mean, how lucky are we to have all our limbs, all our senses, to have food, to have shelter? I mean, yeah, to have running water, even as humans, how many humans don't have running water? How many humans don't have shelter? How many humans are in war zones? Like we're in none of those. So we're already extremely lucky. And then to have some kind of artistic or creative talent, to have some kind of money, to have some kind of support system. I mean, we're really in the top echelon of all creatures that ever have lived on this planet. And I think it's using that privilege, using what we have and donating and giving and and giving ourselves to the whole, giving our bodies and our minds to the whole, and to more and more see things as a collective, more and more to see even just this one planet as one thing, you know, all the countries that we think exist, they're really only lines that people have drawn on maps. They're not really real in any sense of the ultimate Um <laughs> And it's a really question, like literally the message I get every single time is question every single thing we've been taught, every word we think is real, every phrase, every theory, um, question our own minds, question what our minds tell ourselves, right? Question what all the scientists, all the governments, all our teachers question everything because they came from a limited point of view. And yeah, so that's a little bit about cosmology i guess and vision <laughs> so there's a lot in there the issue of questions comes up on this show a lot and you know this this notion that we are moving from an area where the questions were many and the answers few to a question to an, to an era where the 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 answers are more and more available to us as we become more networked with one another. It becomes easier to ask someone who has devoted their lives to ocean fishing about mm. ocean fishing, for example. And so the question of 
how do we orient our attention in this, this explosion of available information? The question of how do we choose the question is mm. coming up more and more, I, I think, yep. in, in the, you know, all kinds of different domains. And ultimately, that's a question of the direction of our attention. Mm. And, you know, how do we orient ourselves in mystery? You know, how do we orient ourselves to something that we can't properly model, that we can't understand? And, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm curious... Do you see there being any kind of, I mean, I know that it's like we're both sort of embedded in history and maybe it's hard to tell, but do you, do you think that people are encountering the mystery of the psychedelic experience in a way that is uh, different? Like, how do you think it may be different now than the way that it was when these traditions were established in human beings? Or oh, you, yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's an interesting question. How do you think that these traditions are aligning with our sort of moment in the, the oh, beginning yeah. of the internet age? Well, I think we're at a stage now where I, you know, like a lot of people have been referring to these psychedelics as tools and they are sort of like spiritual tools and mind opening tools. And I mean, let's use those tools to, to move in a, in a, in a positive, wholesome environmentally sustainable direction. And so I think now that we know that other civilizations exist and that this world is all connected, I think this is the biggest opportunity and challenge for us because we feel the weight on our shoulders. We see that like it's really we have to take responsibility now. Every piece of plastic that we use, you know, every every piece of meat or every piece of dairy that we consume, we can see how it's a part of this global system. And that if we buy, like if a collective city stops buying milk or cheese, it will directly affect like millions of other lives. Mm. And also it's like, now we have to make choices, you know, like do we, uh, just the idea of dairy is like, do we stop buying dairy and, and then have farmers suffer and have them, you know, struggling for cash and then having, you know, cows not being fed or cows not being reproduced. Or, I mean, I don't know. There's so many questions there. And then or do we consume dairy because it's our pleasure and it feeds the farmer and the cow, but also contributes to this kind of um, methane gas or, you know, feeding the cows with grains that could be used to feed humans and you know, spending whatever, however many, you know, thousands of liters of, you know, water for, you know, a cup of milk or a, a burger or something like that. So it's really about how this kind of interconnection is this kind of, it's this kind of responsibility on us. Like, yes, we are part of the network and that every choice that we make, you know, and some of these things, I mean, I see every day, it's, I mean, in the store now, like literally everything is packaged in plastic and it's tough sometimes. Like we, we do our best to buy fresh fruits and vegetables, but also like we're humans and we want the little snack or we want the, the bread from the store that's packaged in plastic or we want whatever it is that's in a, 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 a plastic carton or, or a paper carton. So, 
And then and then the whole recycling thing, like, yes, we put things out for recycling, but like, where does all this recycling go? You know, does it actually get recycling? And do, do the food crumbs on our little pieces of paper or our plastic, like what happens during the recycling process? Like, where do these food crumbs go? So it's, I think it's like start asking the really minute micro questions of our daily lives, how it affects the environment. And it's really difficult. You know, I mean, it's not like the other day I was in the airport. We just got back from the Canary Islands on vacation and just, you know, we were just feeling like we were anxious for getting home and there was a Burger King and we we rarely ever eat Burger King, but it was there. And so we got fries and they gave us two Heinz ketchup uh, packets and this uh, this Heinz, a sour cream and chives packet. And we ate it. But. And it was so, it tasted so good on our tongues, but at the same time, we fit, we felt guilty. Like, are we really taking care of the planet when we don't even care about, when we can't even resist these tiny packets of, of plastic, you know? And so, yeah, it's like really makes us, I think it humbles us to how, how powerful the system is and how hard we as humans have to work to sort of move in a new direction. Mm. You know, there's some, there's an idea that I want to run past you, see what it sparks in you, which is that I, I think that like what you're describing, uh, the way that people are becoming more and more in a, in, in a way it is an unpleasant awakening to yeah. our immersion in things, our interbeing. And there's been so much talk since the beginning of the web uh, I mean, you know, you and I both know that the history of the Internet itself was in some ways deeply intertwined with the the uh, eruption of psychedelics and psychedelic consciousness in the West. And so it seems as though that that history, that relationship has created a technological environment that is itself deeply psychedelic and that the the unpleasant awareness of our how our decisions are intertwined with all of these things all of these different communities and supply chains and and realities around the world is something like sitting there in meditation and like becoming aware of your own you know visceral physical processes and being yeah. like disturbed by these things that normally your attention is not focused on that that normally these things remain below the threshold of human awareness you know mm -hmm. like i had a friend in in college who who took mushrooms and said that he became suddenly aware that he he could he was like consciously responsible for the beating of his own heart and it made him so anxious that he stopped tripping entirely like never went back to it and mm -hmm. And I, so I think that there's something, there's a way in which the internet is like that, that, mm. that we are strangely immersed in a, an enormous psychedelic operation of our own design. And yeah. uh, I'm not sure whether this is making it easier for people to mm. enter these, these nonlinear states of, of being, you know, whether it's, it's mm. rehearsal or whether 
whether there needs to be a sort of normal state of consciousness, like a normal waking state that people can use as a departure point, you know, that, there, that, that there's like a rhythm or a breathing to it that we're losing by making our normal daily lives more and more psychedelic. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I, 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 I'm, I'm curious to know yeah. what you think about the weirding of things and, and, and mm-hmm. like where people might run into uh, challenges or yeah that kind of thing. I think, yeah, I think the internet, I mean, there's so much going around the internet with the whole, uh, you know, the government's trying to control it and net neutrality and yeah, it's like a, it's such a double-edged sword. I mean, the, a couple of days ago, I'm like, I I've had it with, with the social media. So I blocked, I, I did a parental control block or I did a website blocker on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit. So those were the five. And man, like over the last few days, you know, I've deleted two Facebook accounts actually in the last, uh, like couple a year and a half or something. Yeah. About two years maybe. And, you know, and they were great. And then now I have a Facebook account, but it can really suck us into this kind of small-minded narcissistic state as well. And I think it's, I think it's start, I think people are starting to realize how poisonous social media can be and how, um, how disconnected it can make us feel from other humans. And so I think a lot of it is using the internet so that people can gather in person and to talk face to face and to avoid the, I mean, there's some amazing conversations that can happen on the internet, but how much more amazing and how much more action can be taken when people get together? It's like that action, right? There's so many people who talk about stuff, but who actually risks everything, like his whole reputation, all his money to take action for the betterment of society or humanity. Like, and how many people just talk about it, you know? Mm. Um, so I think it's that bringing how the web works and like, yeah, the mushroom definitely works like the internet. The mushroom is the internet and it can teach us how to network like, like no other. I mean, it can teach us how to build networks and to, um, to, you know, sustain ourselves financially. It can teach us how to think really creatively and to how, how to solve problems and how to work as a collective and how to recruit and how to build teams. And yeah, I think it's an amazing tool. And at the same time, I think it can be a trap and I think it can p- keep people small minded. So, I mean, you know, the Buddhist teachers always say and the, and the Buddhist tradition is all about being around teachers like that's the entire path is being around spiritual friends, mm. people who really care about you, guides, teachers. And so. It's about it's about that. It's about being close to people who have big hearts and big visions and being close to them and just really surrendering. And for me, it's the mushroom because the mushroom's vision is infinite and it's it's love is infinite. And so what I mean, all I do every day and all I think about every day is the mushroom and how I can just serve it. Mm, that's elegant. <laughs> so we're we're up on an hour here, Chi, and I want to I, I I want to end this show the way that that I, I typically end the show, which is to invite you. Which 
in a where in a weird way given the emphasis in both buddhism and the psychedelic experience on presence in the moment this may seem strange to you i know my my meditation instructor friend Corey allen kind of pushed back on this question when i had him on the show but if you were to imagine this recording as a kind of communication with unborn generations of listeners you know uh historians or or whomever and you know that there's an opportunity for us to stand in witness of those that sort of greater human story uh together with people that we will never meet in life then (laughs) how you know what what kind of um message would you hope to transmit into that imagined future and like what kind of questions would you have for those unborn generations? Oh gosh. Well, first I would say we are very sorry as, uh, as a society and as a species for all the harm we've done to this planet and for being so selfish and prioritizing our pleasures over the, the health of of people and of animals and plants and the ocean. And so, and we're also doing our best. Some of us are really doing our best and we are all have, you know, this kind of conditioning that really keeps us from being non completely non harmful. And we do these things that are harmful for future generations, but we are really doing our best to, uh, reshift the conversations on what it's like to be a human and what our purpose on earth is and what the evolution of our species uh, can look like and should look like. And yeah. And um, yeah, we hope, we hope that you won't look on us too uh, harshly and we hope that uh, we can, as you know, as, as we move forward, we hope we can really at least return to a neutral uh, state and at least return to a state where we're not causing as much harm to the planet. And um, yeah, and thank you for listening. And also, yeah, just uh, please, I, I, I mean, the questions I would ask is what their vision is of the planet and the, and the universe that they live in and what they are like a hundred years from now, I'm really curious to how evolved their consciousness is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Well, gee, thank you so much for taking the time with me to, to sit and chat about this. Where, where can people find you and your community and, and where would you point people to learn more? Yeah. So, uh, truffles therapy would be the first place. It's a T R U F F L E S therapy, T H E R A P Y.com. That's where our majority of our information is. And then we have tripsitters.org, which is, um, you know, just a harm reduction site. And then we also have Amsterdam conscious community on Facebook and Amsterdam psychedelic community. And, uh, yeah. And we also have, have like a dozen other ideas that we're incubating too so uh yeah please we'd love we'd love to you know if you want to get involved we'd love to come see you and we'd love to see you in amsterdam and we really grow organically so however way you think you can 
help the humanity move forward. If we can support you in any way, we are open to that. And thank you guys, everybody, for listening. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod Network, along with Third Eye Drops, The Astral Hustle, Synchronicity Podcast, and an oodle of other fascinating programs. I encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And stay tuned, because we have some awesome episodes coming up on Future Fossils. But for now, may your now be exquisite, long, and wonderful.